0: Oh Lord Jesus, we know that you have the words of life. That which our hearts need most is not to be comfortable, not to be prosperous, not to be self-fulfilled. No, that what our hearts need most is to hear you speak. This morning, would you do that through your word? Would you make us into people that take you at your word? To trust you from our hearts and find that you were all we needed in the first place. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. In 2010, Emory University hosted the Dalai Lama. Students, understandably, were not naturally going to know how to interact with such an interesting figure, and so the university put out a student guide how it is that you can show honor and respect to the Dalai Lama. Here are a few of the bullet points from it. The first is you were to refer to him as his holiness or your holiness at all times. Secondly, if you were to shake hands, you must do it with two hands, kind of a clasp type thing, not just the standard American one hand sort of deal. Second, if Third, if you're sitting, you need to make sure that your feet were not facing the Dalai, or pointed toward the Dalai Lama. They had to be facing one direction or the other. As long as they're not toward him, you're cool. Uh, fourth, if you decide you wanted to exit the room, you don't turn your back and walk away. You never show them your back. You had to kind of awkwardly shuffle backwards and out of the room. And then fifth, which is, I'm sure was very easy to do after those first four, just be yourself. Just be yourself, right? <laughs> now, uh, not easy to know how it is to show honor and respect in a situation like that because of the cultural differences. Maybe if you're a Buddhist, you would know how to do those things. But for many of us, it requires a lot of work to know that. And yet, in other arenas of life, we understand this idea of how to honor someone. It's based on who they are and what our relationship to them is like, right? So we know that a military, a great military hero may be honored by having a medal pinned to their shirt. Or we know a great civil rights leader might have a statue erected in their honor or have a, a day that we as a nation recognize. Maybe it's your mother or your grandmother when Mother's Day comes around, you honor them by taking the time to actually call them and tell them how much you appreciate them. And to honor someone is to, to show their true worth, to show them respect, and to treat them how they are due. We understand this. All sorts of people in our lives require honor. But the question before all of us that are disciples of Jesus is this. How do you honor Jesus how do you honor Jesus? What is it that Jesus expects of those that would call themselves Christians, disciples of Christ, followers of Christ? What does he expect from us? Does he want us to go on long pilgrimages to visit holy lands? Does he want us to be ascetic in our practices, denying ourselves even the most basic of human pleasures like food and even enough sleep? Does he require of us something like a spiritual rigor, a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or maybe we honor him by living that victorious life, going from one miracle to the next, victory to victory. What does it take for a Christian to honor Jesus? Well, our passage before us shows us the answer to that. It shows us that to honor Jesus is not to do any of these things. It's most fundamentally to take Jesus at his word, to hear what Jesus says and to believe it about himself, about where we stand in relationship to him, and about how we can be brought to God through him. We'll we'll see that in two sections as we move through our passage this morning. First, in 43 through 48, we'll see the negative example, how not to honor Jesus by seeking signs through him, by seeking him for signs, 43 through 48. 48 how not to honor Jesus. And second, we'll see how to honor Jesus positively by taking him at his word, by trusting that's, that what he says about us and about himself. Let's begin in verses 43 through 48, how not to honor Jesus. If you were here last week, you remember that Jesus just got done rocking the religious world yet again. He went to a place where no good rabbi would ever want to go into the heart of Samaria. That's half-breed country. People that were from the, the wrong heritage, they, they worshipped in the wrong place, they didn't have the right book. They, they were people that were to be avoided by at all costs. And yet Jesus marched right into the heart of Samaria and then compounded the scandal by speaking with the most untouchable of the untouchables, an adulterous woman. As that encounter unfolded, this woman came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. She took him at his word. She, in fact, took him at his word so much so that she went and started gossiping about him to everyone else in her town, and and they too heard about Jesus and invited Jesus to come and stay with them, and it all comes to a head. Look with me in verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. A whole town of Samaritans a whole bunch of them come to believe in Jesus. Take him at his word. He stays two days and and that becomes the backdrop for where our passage starts. Jesus is transitioning out from Samaria back into Jewish territory into the area of Galilee. That's where 43 begins. He departed for Galilee and that sets us up for two surprises. Uh, Pastor John Piper, when he was uh, teaching through this, he said that this is one of the most perplexing passages in the whole Bible. Um, I'm not sure if that, I quite agree with that statement fully, but I will say there are at least two big surprises we have to wrap our heads around and before we can understand what's happening here. Uh, the first surprise is why Jesus goes back to Galilee. Look at verse 44. It starts off with that word for. For, that, as in because Because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So Jesus is leaving Samaria, going back to Jewish territory, going to Galilee because, and then we have this proverb that Jesus was teaching. The proverb is not too hard to understand. A a prophet has no honor in his home hometown. In other words, uh, prophets don't find a friendly reception where they're from. If you know your Old Testament, that's not particularly surprising. There's a great history of prophets being persecuted, rejected, sometimes even killed by the very people that they've sprung up from. Jesus says it's as true in his day as it was back in the Old Testament that a prophet is despised in his hometown. What's surprising is why would that be the reason that Jesus has to go back to this area? That's first surprise. Second surprise comes in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, hold on a second, John. I thought you just got done saying that Jesus is going back because he's not going to be honored. And then they welcomed him. What's the deal? That's the second surprise. Now, commentators have been struggling with how to deal with this interpretive conundrum for a long time. So this is nothing new. There's a few different tactics. Some have tried to say that John just got a little mixed up here. That uh, he he didn't realize he was contradicting himself. He could have used a good editor. But if you believe that the Bible is true and infallible and inerrant, then that's obviously not a a valid option. Uh, Others have tried to say there's two different groups of people in view here. There's the people of his hometown. Remember, Jesus is actually from Nazareth. And there's the people in Galilee more broadly that encompasses Nazareth and these other areas. So maybe the people in his hometown didn't like him, but the people in Galilee more broadly liked him. Uh, The only problem is Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere here. It it seems like a stretch. Now, I think to understand what John's doing here, we have to do a little work on the structure of John's book. So if you would, take your your thumb, if you've got your Bible, stick it here in in chapter 4, and go back with me to chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to a couple of clues that we are on the back end of a bookend that began at the beginning of chapter 2. So just let your eye go down the page 2, 1 through 11. Remember, that was about the uh, miracle Jesus did at the wedding in Cana, the turning water into wine. Now flip back over to chapter 4 and look at verse 46, the, the verse right after the one we're reading. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And see, it starts with Cana in Galilee. It, it, we're ending up back where we started, Cana in Galilee. Uh, another tighter parallel comes in 223 through 25. Flip over to 223 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was doing all these miracles at the Passover feast. Some people believed in him, but there was something wrong with their belief. It was shallow, it was hollow. So much so that Jesus knew better. He didn't entrust himself to them, even though it looked like outwardly they were welcoming him. Flip back to chapter 4. Now look at, with me at verse 45. Notice the parallel. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So what's John telling us here? John's telling us what he said back in chapter 1. After Jesus leaves the Samaritans, the people that are least likely to accept him, he goes back to his own people. And yet his own people won't accept him. His own people won't receive him. No, they're interested in him, but they're interested in him not for who he really is. They're, They're interested in what they can get out of him. They're interested in him in the way of someone with ulterior motives is interested in you. Maybe they thought that Jesus would be that political Messiah that would get them out from the thumb, under the thumb of the Romans finally. Or, or maybe they just thought, hey, these miracles and all this spiritual fervor, this is pretty cool, I could, I could do with some more of this. But whatever it is that they were after, what they weren't after was Jesus on his own terms. They weren't here to let Jesus tell them who he was and let him define the relationship now you know this to be the case that people come to jesus with all sorts of reasons why they're attracted to him right I mean, sometimes people come to jesus because they think he's a, a pretty cool heroic political type figure to follow you have the social change jesus The one who's interested in all the same social causes that you are. It just ends up being the the perfect model for you to model your movement after. Or you've got the miracle worker Jesus. The one who promises you spiritual victory after spiritual victory. Spiritual high after spiritual high if you'll just have enough faith. Or maybe it's the, the type of Jesus that you find in Jesus' calling. The Jesus on the other end of the line that never says anything too difficult to really challenge you. That only says affirming, warm, fuzzy sorts of things. We have all sorts of different ways that we like to imagine Jesus. And yet, if we don't let Jesus define himself, if we don't come to him on his terms, if we don't take him at his word, we're doing the same thing the Jews back then were doing. We're coming to Jesus for what he can give us not for jesus himself now i don't want you to think that this looking for signs and miracles that the jews were doing is in itself bad signs and miracles are not themselves bad as we'll see in the section that comes right after with the that jesus is about to do a miracle to heal a man's son who's on the verge of dying but those signs and miracles are meant to lead us to Jesus, not to be an end to themselves. Let's keep moving in the passage. In verse 43, after two, uh, sorry, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine and at Capernaum. There was an official whose son was ill. But saying it's an official there, the, the word that's used for that would be used for a king or someone who works for the king. Most likely that'd be someone working for Herod in that day. Uh, That would be someone who's powerful and used to getting his way. He knows how to get his hands dirty to make sure it happens. This is a a powerful man who's in a powerless position because he's finding out what parents have found out throughout the years. There are few things that will humble someone like watching their child suffer. We're told his son was ill. Later we find out he has some sort of a fever. It's so bad he's on the verge of death. Now, now back then, without modern medicine, uh, without antibiotics and scans and various things, I mean, illnesses were even more mysterious and cruel than they are today. This man was desperate, so desperate that he's willing to take a long shot. Look what he says in verse 47. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This really important man travels a full day from Capernaum to Cana, shows up, and it says he heard Jesus was there, and we're not told what he knows about Jesus. Maybe he was at the Passover and saw the miracles, or maybe he just heard about it through the grapevine. Whatever reason, he thinks a long shot is worth it because of how bad the situation with his son is. He makes the, the journey over, and then something really out of character happens. He starts pleading with Jesus. It so says he starts asking him to come down, the, the way that's written, it's, a, it's an ongoing sort of action. You can see of a man, think of a man pleading or groveling. Think of a powerful man doing that before Jesus. Now, if you have a conception of Jesus that comes from sentimental pictures of him and what pop culture says about him, uh, what comes next is gonna be really hard to understand. But if you just read the Bible, you'll find that Jesus is, yes, both gentle and graceful. He knows how to deal with us at our worst, at our lowest. And yet he also knows how to speak a hard word. In verse 48, he, he straight up rebukes the man. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Believe. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't think Jesus is being cold or cruel here. Uh, Even the way he says that, it's obvious the the you there is not just addressed to the man. It's a plural you. It would be the way, like Jesus saying, unless y'all see miracles, y'all won't believe. It's speaking to the group that the man is from. This is an indictment on this whole region of a Jewish people that should have been believing in the Messiah that was sent to them. And yet... Jesus still has a, what is undoubtedly a hard word for this man. As desperate as he may be, as real as the problem is, he's not showing up to Jesus with the purest of hearts. Jesus knows this. And he's willing to speak a hard word so that this man might actually find genuine faith. It's a hard thing to think about the fact that we might be seeking Jesus for something other than himself. It's possible to be attracted to church and Jesus for all sorts of reasons. I mean, maybe you grew up in church and so you just like being around things that are familiar and feel old. Now back when there were revivals happening on grand scales, they, they noticed that people were attracted just to the spectacle of it all. They, they just wanted to be around a lot of spiritual energy. But once it faded, they, they fell off pretty quickly. Now we see here in this passage Jesus is not honored by seeking signs. Jesus isn't honored by us coming to him just looking for what we can get from him. No, Jesus is honored by something else entirely. He's honored by us trusting him. That's where we come to in our next section, verses 49 through 54. How do you actually honor Jesus? By taking him at his word. Now, we are in a day where you are, it's understandable if It's becoming harder and harder to take people at their word. I read a headline recently of how big tech lost our trust. It's about how Facebook and Google and Amazon and all these giant tech companies managed to mess up the trust that they had with the public through a series of scandals on the way they handled data and made money off us and the the like. I mean, we are used to this pattern, aren't we? People telling us one thing. And then a few years later, something happens and we find out something else is true. From politicians to CEOs, even local officials, and even people in our own families. We just live in a day and age where truth is hard to come by. And yet if we're going to honor Jesus, we must be able to take him at his word. What we see this, from this desperate man is that true faith springs from a trust of the word of Jesus. Look, look in verse 48. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Jesus does not say yes to the man's request. He doesn't say no to his request. He, he tells him something entirely different. He's going to do the miracle. He's going to heal this boy. And yet he's going to do it in such a way that this man will be required to take Jesus at his word. He says, go and your son will be healed. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. Consider what he had to do in order to take Jesus at his word. There was no flash of the sky, no glowing hands. There were no cell phones back then. He couldn't phone back home and see if the kid was okay. He had to journey back a day with nothing but the word of Jesus. And yet he did. For all of his mixed motives showing up, for all the the reasons he was seeking Jesus, they were less than Jesus himself. At this moment, a kernel of faith begins to bloom into the full thing. The man goes back, and says he believed Jesus, went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told them that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when it began to he began to get better, and they said. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Imagine that scene. He's heading back. He stays the night because he can't make it back that same day. He arrives back the next day. His servants meet him on the way and tell him, your son, he recovered. He asked when it happened. It was exactly the moment when Jesus said that word. That, That shows us the power of Jesus, friends. He doesn't need to be in the same town as this guy. He doesn't need to wait until this guy returns back to see if he would obey. Jesus speaks and things happen because Jesus is the very son of God. He has the very authority of God. He made this world and he made our bodies as much as a doctor and chemotherapy and all the medicine in the world can heal our bodies to some degree, Jesus with a word can do what the whole world wishes it could do. Notice also that the faith grows as he sees the sign, it says that the man believed. There was another depth to his faith and that faith actually starts spilling over to his household. They all believed too. It starts spreading. Now this, friend shows us how a miracle is supposed to work. A miracle is supposed to be like a sign that points us to the true belief, that points us to Jesus himself. If you've got your Bible, flip open to John chapter 20, 30 through 31. This is the, the reason the whole gospel of John is written. John 20, 30 through 31. I want you to notice what John's gospel says that these miracles are intended to do. Now, Jesus did many other signs or miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The reason the miracles are recorded is so that you might actually trust Jesus, that he is who he says he is, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. See, friends, miracles are not bad in themselves. They're just not to be an end of themselves. They're to lead you to Jesus. Really, the issue is whether we will believe what Jesus says, whether we'll believe what he says about us, about himself, and about how we have to have a relationship with him in order to be right with God. I wonder this morning, what are the words that Jesus speaks that you need to believe that you need to take him at his word at, in order to be faithful this year. I mean, mean, we don't have Jesus here on earth speaking words to us in the same way as the man did back then, but we have the recorded scriptures, the word of Christ. That word of Christ tells us about Christ. It tells us what he thinks about us and how it is we were to relate to him. I, I wonder if you need to be reminded this new year, friend, that even with all the New Year's resolutions that you make and all the improvements you hope to make in your life, that ultimately you're standing before God. You're standing before God is secure because Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. I wonder if maybe this New Year, even as you're already starting to feel regrets, the weight and guilt of sin, if you need to remember that that Jesus says that anyone that believes in him will find the forgiveness of sins, true eternal life. I wonder if maybe this new year, maybe if there's a health issue in your very family, maybe even yourself, you're feeling the fact that this body won't last forever. And you need to be reminded that Jesus promised that he is the resurrection and the life. That one day you will have a body like his that never dies. Friends, for us, We are to do the work of honoring Jesus by taking him at his word. This new year, maybe that means you have a renewed focus on reading the Bible. Come to it not not just as an academic thing, not just as getting a little more knowledge in your head, but come to it as hearing Jesus talk to you so that you can know how to live and respond to him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I understand this is one of the hardest things to get over as you're figuring out what Christianity is all about. It's this idea that the Bible itself is Jesus actually talking to us, actually God's word to us. Now, It may be strange that we would spend so much time on a book that was written 2,000 years ago for a third of it and 3,500 years ago for the rest of it. Why why would we be stuck in the Bronze Age when we live in the modern age? It's a good question to be asking. You understand, we believe that we can't honor Jesus unless we take his word and we actually believe it. It's not up to us to pick and choose what parts of it we like, what parts fit with the modern age, and what don't. The word of God is for us to hear and believe and be changed by, not to edit. It's not that we're trying to be difficult. It's that the only way to honor Jesus is to believe his word, to take him at his word. And that includes everything he said to us, even the parts we don't like. Now, I have to admit that there is an elephant in the room when we come to a passage like this, which shows Jesus using his sovereign power to heal a boy from the jaws of death, to snatch him out of the jaws of death and bring him to life. Because any of us who are parents know the great pain of watching your child suffer. And if you haven't already, there will come a day when someone you love, someone you care deeply for, is suffering even on their deathbed. And the question people sometimes ask is, is Jesus the same today as he was back then? Really the question they're asking is, should we expect healing the way Jesus healed then, now? Should Christians normally expect Jesus to be doing miraculous healings among us? Should that be the normal Christian experience? It it doesn't take much work to find preachers that will tell you that the atonement of Jesus includes your healing. And so if you would just believe hard enough, if you would just cleanse yourself from enough sin that you have healing just waiting for you and that you just need to Press into God until you find your breakthrough, and then you will find healing from whatever ails you. Now, as wonderful as it would be, if that were the reality, both experience and the Bible show us that's just not the case. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul talks about some sort of ailment he had, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Regardless of what it was, he prayed three times. That's a way of saying earnestly. He prayed that God would remove it. And Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That same Paul says that he was nearly brought to, the, to, uh, to sorrow, to a breaking point, because one of his dear friends, Epaphroditus, became sick, even sick unto death doesn't appear that his apostolic faith was enough to just heal him at any point. We know this from experience too, don't we? Christians get old. Christians suffer. Very often, Christians are asked to walk the road of death. That's true of martyrdom, but it's also true of our physical bodies. I have a, a friend He was uh, in college, a very faithful, faithful uh, brother. Uh, He went off to college to play football. And while he was playing football, he felt a pain that didn't feel right. So he, he went into the doctor, and they discovered a lump. And that lump turned out to be cancer. Very strong physically. And over the months, that cancer spread very aggressively. And that strong, young body was ravaged in a way that was, frankly, very hard to watch. Got to the point where they didn't think he had long left, so they called a number of his friends from Florida to drive up to go be with him. It might be their last time to say goodbye. Now, in God's kindness, he was healed. And he will tell you to this day, he believes that it was the prayers of the legion of people praying for him that the Lord answered. His cancer went into remission very suddenly, The doctors didn't have a great explanation for it. It stayed in remission since then. He is now a pastor here in Indianapolis. He tells people about how Jesus has the power to heal bodies even, certainly has the power to heal your soul. As wonderful as that is and as much as we need to pray when someone is sick, realize it doesn't always go that way. Even this week, we as a College Park family saw firsthand the story of another college student. Tyler Trent was a faithful believer when he went off to college. He loved Jesus. And then that awful disease of cancer came to ruin all of it. He went into remission. He fought back. He kept positive. He prayed. He he had a legion of people praying for him. He was even faithful to use the platform his cancer gave him to witness to Jesus. And yet this week, Tyler went home to be with Jesus. No friends, in this world we are not promised that we will go from victory to victory. We're not promised there will be no sorrows. We will not promise that these bodies will not grow weak and die, yes, even to disease. But what we're promised is that Jesus can be trusted. That if we take him at his word, we'll find grace sufficient for whatever God asks us to walk through. Tyler wrote a number of words. I don't know if you've followed how ESPN and major media outlets picked up on what he uh, his story. It was incredible to see the way the Lord used it. After the first two bouts with cancer, he looked back on it and said that he thought he had not used his platform for Jesus in the way that he ought to. So he was quoted as saying, uh, he prayed to God, he prayed for healing, yes, but he prayed for something bigger even than that. I wanted to make a difference, Tyler told me a few weeks ago. I didn't think I'd made a difference the first time. That's what I prayed for. If I'm gonna have cancer, use me to make an impact. Pastor Mark Vrogop, as he was reflecting back and even lamenting the death of Tyler, found solace in some words that we'll get to in chapter 11 of John's Gospel from Jesus. Words that he asks us to believe today to make sense of things like cancer and death. Those words are these. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, what honors Jesus? Is it seeking signs? Is it going from one spiritual victory to the, the next? Or is it taking Jesus at his word? Whatever season that brings. His grace is sufficient for us because we have all we need in Him. Let's pray.